What's up, Bitcoin people? Hope you're staying safe out there. It's your boy, Colin. I'm here with Christian. What's up, Christian? How's it going, man? Just getting through another day. Bitcoin's pumping. Yeah, dude. Bitcoin is pumping. It's pumping with stocks, though, so it makes me less happy. But I'm always happy when Bitcoin's pumping. I'm also pumped because I think we just recorded a really bomb episode. We sat down with Ansel Lenner, host of Bitcoin and Markets. Really cool dude. Just has a lot of theories and ideas on macro financial markets and the economy. And we talked a lot about Bitcoin, obviously, as always, uh, but more so we talked about Fed monetary policy and uh, the risks of deflation and how Ansel thinks, or Ansel, I should say, excuse me, thinks that r- the real risk here, guys, is not, hype, is not hyperinflation, but actually deflation. So really excited to show you the show, but before, got to handle the sponsor biz. First up is Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is a sexy way to stack stats. It's got uh, really seamless dollar cost averaging features available in 49 states, lowest fees on the market, great service. Highly recommend you go check them out, swanbitcoin.com. We got every way you can buy Bitcoin here. Next is eToro. So uh, Swan Bitcoin's all about dollar cost averaging and eToro is all about trading. They make it easy for you to trade the way that you want. You can buy Bitcoin, you can buy, buy other shit coins. We do not recommend that. But if you want it, you got it. And if you want to do index fund investing, if you want to actively trade, if you want to passively actively trade uh, with their social trading features and copy trading features, uh, eToro is the spot to do that. Go to eToro.com. Check them out. Or if you want to stack sats and be liberated at the same time, you can hit up BISC for the best And really the only way to trade Bitcoin in a decentralized manner, unless you're literally just like going to one of your homies and paying cash. BISC is a a decentralized order book that allows you to uh, buy Bitcoin worldwide using a variety of different features uh, like Zelle, um, actually uh, even uh, money orders, uh, things like that. And uh, you download your own instance, uh, run it over tour, trade in a decentralized environment with Bitcoiners all around the world. Check it out, bisc.com. Like I said, really probably the only true way to trade Bitcoin online in a decentralized fashion. And last but not least, Colin, me, and the entire Bitcoin Magazine team are hard at work planning the ultimate having party. We have a 21-hour live stream broadcast from Bitcoin Magazine with all of your favorite Bitcoiners talking Bitcoin the entire day leading up to the halving and capped off with a massive virtual halving party. Again, every Bitcoiner that you know is going to be there, including Ansel, including Pierre Richard, Bitstein, Marty and Matt, uh, Matt D'Souza. If you know them, they're going to be there. Check out BitcoinHalving.com. We got less than 20 days until the third ever halving. Be a part of history. Go to BitcoinHalving.com. Yeah, and let's just get into this interview. Uh, I think Colin said everything you need to hear at the beginning. Uh, Ansel is just bringing the unpopular opinions. Everyone is screaming inflation, and Ansel is doing the hard work to understand why deflation, the opposite, could be possible. Uh, So, yeah, let's just jump into it. What's up, y'all? Welcome to What the Fuck is Happening with the Fed. I'm your host, Colin Harper, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ansel Lenner, self-proclaimed Bitcoiner. We love it. And also the host of the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. Ansel, how are you doing? 
I'm doing great, Colin. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, definitely, brother. So uh, you stay in uh, lockdown over there in Jacksonville. What have people been? Uh, what have people been doing? Has there been, you know, in Tennessee and Kentucky, the prevailing sentiment is kind of civil unrest. People are tired of being locked down and they want to get back to work. What's going on over there? I mean, especially in my area, I live in a little self-contained little bubble and hasn't been too bad. I mean, now we're about what, like 75% of people are wearing masks. Um, Lots of businesses are closed down, but um, my world is not extremely affected. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that is a good thing. I'm kind of finding that with, uh, with me as well. I kind of feel like I'm in a bubble. I live in, used to be a seedier part of Nashville, but my girlfriend has, uh, she babysits for a few families and she's had steady employment because all the parents are working from home and, you know, need, 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 need a babysitter. And, uh, I've had some consistent work with writing and we're doing podcasts like this. So it's been kind of nice. Uh, I feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop though, which is kind of making me feeling anxious. But uh, yeah, people are, you know, people are clamoring to get the economy open back up, man. I've been having arguments with my dad about it because like, I understand the argument, obviously you can't just say, oh, well, if you open it back up, people will die. Well, it's like, yeah, well, people's lives are going to get worse if the economy doesn't open back up. Right. Uh, And, but if you open the economy back up, then maybe people get sick and the economy closes. It's a terrible dilemma and, and it has horrible consequences that we've seen this week with, with oil uh, futures for May, just, just bottoming down just plummeting and people asking i remember i told my dad i said yo oil future oil prices uh went negative and he goes no what (laughs) like his response was just like complete like what do you mean um and so we have a lot of stuff slated for the for the show today i think that kind of to get it kicked off a few things oil bottomed out this week stocks are climbing 4.4 million unemployment and so what's going on right now What's the macro view? Depends on how deep you want to go on it. Um, it kind of problem started around uh, 2018 into 2019. And then this, this virus, I think, was just a big catalyst. So it just brought, it condensed like the next five years of economic problems down to three months. So um, that's kind of where I see this playing out in a, in a grand scheme. Now, I could go into some of the problems we saw prior to this virus and then why I think the government is cracking down the way it is. Um, but that's, that's a long conversation, but we could go there if you wanted to. You're saying we saw some weakness in things like, you know, the repo market in September. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you're probably going to even go so far as to talk about some weaknesses that were showing up in 2018 when we started to try to wind down QE3, right? Because that's really when you started to see some of the problems and then there were liquidity constraints because of stuff that was uh, implemented with the Dodd-Frank Act. And it was kind of this horrible concoction of like regulation and also just mismanagement as usual. Um, but I guess, I guess just give us a key breakdown in your view, like the, the, you know, the key points of instability that kind of set the stage for what we're experiencing right now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really hard to know exactly what's wrong. Um, one of the problems with shadow banking is you don't know, you don't really have good statistics about anything that's happening, but you can get glimpses from certain uh, things you can see like NERP. When NERP started really taking over in Europe, that was a key sign. Break that down for, for some of our listeners. What is NERP? NERP is the negative interest rate policy. So when interest rates basically were below zero, I think out to 30 years in in Germany and in Europe. So uh, that's just showing like 
for some reason, everybody wants to buy treasuries or bonds. And that's a bad, a bad sign. Uh, Germany also slid into recession. We saw the Italian financial crisis stuff in 2018, uh, Brexit. I mean, just populism and the feeling of unrest around the world. In 2019, um, we saw Chinese bank failures pick up. Chinese debt. I mean, I think China was going to be the epicenter of this, even if it wasn't a virus thing. I think China was going to be the epicenter financially as well. Um, and on the Fed side, we saw in 2018, we saw inflation expectations turn down. And then we saw the uh, tightening, quantitative tightening stop. And we saw rate cuts then in 2019. And finally followed by this repo instability. So, um, you know, this was just building and this was coming to a head and the virus. Yeah, and that's one of the things, boom. That's one of the things that I think is most frustrating, especially when you look at mainstream media is the idea that it's so easy to play this narrative. And I often find it frustrating when any media outlet says stock does blank on blank news. It's like the stocks aren't, I mean, sure. Stocks will react to these things, but, but that kind of media framing creates narratives that are hard to eschew at that point because the populace buys into them. For instance, one of those narratives being that this was some sort of black swan that, you know, COVID's toppling the financial uh, and economic, uh, you know, um, well-being of this country, like no doubt ravaging the economy. Uh, but the financial markets were in a bad spot before this happened. And uh, you were kind of touching on it there when, when the Fed started tightening you know, that, that quantitative, quantitative tightening and started, you know, trying to shrink its balance sheet. When they started trying to do that, we found out in 2019 that whether by combination of malfeasance, regulatory requirements, or just, you know, all of it, the liquidity is not there. Um, and we're starting to see what happens when you start ramping up that balance sheet. And then you start saying, oh, well, now it's time to, to, to deflate it. Well, it's really hard to do. And then people don't realize that in, in, in practice, we've never really you know, this, this, this in practice isn't as set as it is in theory or as, as sure fire as it is in theory that some people think it is. And so I, I really like that you're hitting on that point, And I think it can't be overstated. Um, COVID definitely accelerated something that was a long time coming. You also point, uh, touched on negative interest rates there. You know, we have uh, some for some T-bills in the States, right? Is it like, what, is it the 15 or the 30 year or it went negative for a time, right? Um, the very short dated bonds, like one month to three months, I think actually did go negative here recently. But uh, for the most part, that's U.S., but for the most part, it's U.S. has been positive. The big thing also was the, the uh, interest rate curve inverted. So the shorter dated bonds were paying more than the longer dated bonds. So that's, that's another sign. You, you know, if you go back in history, every time that happens, a recession follows within six months or something like that. So. Yeah, and explain like to our listeners why like you know it kind of almost sounds absurd like the like you know people the money printer go burr meme is becoming kind of ingrained in the social conscience and they see that but then they see also the headlines that say like traders around the world just want dollars or there's there's this there's this flight liquidity flight of liquidity to dollars and that even as the dollar gets printed at infinitum um people still want it and uh I, you often hear in financial talk and financial media uh, why do people stomach negative rates on treasury bills, you know, in Germany and Europe, also the, the short-term ones in the United States, like, cause they want the security and they want the liquidity guarantees from the Fed. So can you kind of explain that to our listeners, like why people like want these treasury bills, even though sometimes they pay out negative rates because of the liquidity guarantees they provide? The U S rates didn't really go negative uh, except for a very brief time. Um, 
just recently. But in Europe, they had long-term negative rates now. Um, and the reason for that, I believe, is because they want those for collateral. So there's a dearth of high-quality collateral in the system. The way I kind of think of it is the repo market or the euro dollar market is the consensus layer. That's the base layer of the monetary system. And to interact with that, you need collateral. So if, if the collateral is being sucked up by quantitative easing, so the ECB doing quantitative easing, then there's no good collateral to go into the repo markets to get cash. So mm. they, they're, there's a huge demand for treasuries or buns or Japanese uh, government bonds. So that's why the, the, the rates are stubbornly negative because people need that collateral to access the cash in the repo market. Uh, this is a collateral problem. Everyone's saying it's a liquidity problem, but you know, there's $2 trillion of reserves sitting at the Fed. There's no cash shortage in that respect. There's a cash shortage because businesses don't have collateral to go into the repo market to get the cash that way. The flow is stopping. It's a flow problem. All right, and this is and, and this is why the Fed is starting to buy all sorts of junk bonds and things like that, so that people can finally uh, use the what the, what's sitting on their balance sheets that they can't use that they wouldn't be able to use the collateral otherwise that they now can. And, and on this note, um, I kind of want to jump into that. Uh, uh, the idea of the Fed continuing to expand its balance sheet and not just expand its balance sheet, but expand the things that it'll buy. I was listening to a podcast this morning, uh, uh, Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway's podcast for Bloomberg. I can't remember the title of it right now. It's evading me. But they had um, Nathan Tankus on. He's this kind of like independent like M MMT researcher and just like, like this kind of like encyclopedia on what the Fed is doing. And one thing that they kind of talked about, one of the questions they asked him is like, you know, is the Fed kind of stretching its mandate? And like, of course, Bitcoiners would say yes. And Austrians would say yes, that they have for, for a while. Um, and they talked about the blending of fiscal and monetary policy. Um, but they, another thing that they asked him was, you know, uh, what about some of this debt that they're buying? You know, people always say, oh, it's just there's moral hazard. It's just junk bonds. And Nathan was saying, you know, it's not always bad, but some of the stuff, these corporate bonds that the, that the Fed is buying, uh, it, it, it can be dangerous because who knows if what they're buying has any value. I want to kind of jump into that side of the Fed's monetary policy and kind of get your take on, you know, the stuff that the Fed is buying these days. What kind of risk does it carry? Why are they have to buying? Why are they having to buy it? Uh, what's going on now that the Fed is setting up these facilities for the secondary market and stuff? It goes back to the collateral, um, that the collateral isn't good enough to en entice the liquidity providers, the natural liquidity providers in the market. So this would be big banks with all those reserves sitting on their balance sheet at the Fed. Um, the collateral is not good enough to entice the, those guys to provide liquidity in the market. So the Fed is coming in and saying, we will provide that liquidity. They're artificially creating, like trying to simulate this flow. It's kind of like, like I said, the consensus layer. If, if you have blocks stopping, then it doesn't matter what's going on necessarily in layer two or layer three or whatever, because the, the consensus layer is stopped. So when, when, this, when the natural mm -hmm. repo market is frozen and the Fed has to come in, that's like no blocks being produced. So there's, right now there's no repo blocks being produced in the world naturally because the collateral 
is not good enough to entice people to lend. There's plenty of cash on the balance sheets of these big banks. I'm not worried about the solvency right now of U.S. banks. Now, other bank, foreign banks, maybe, yeah, um, but not U.S. banks. And, and you're saying you're not worried about the solvency. Is that in part because of some of those regulations that were implemented, like the Dodd-Frank, that they, the, the regulations they used to supplement what they took from glass to gall? Um, I'm not an expert on those things. I just, I, I see the excess You just reserves. look at the balance sheets? Yeah, the excess yeah. reserves sitting at the Fed. It's going to be, you know, I, I have the chart up here. Let me see what it is right now. It's um, $2.5 and it's probably going to get up to $4 trillion here soon. And that's, that's liquidity that, that could be lent in the repo market, but it's not being lent because there's no good collateral. And so the flow of the economy is freezing up. And that's why I say that it's going to be going into. And those are, uh, and just to clarify, those are Fed yeah. accounts for big banks. Yes, that's uh, well, yeah, yeah, big banks, or it could be U.S. banks or foreign banks too, can have a right. Fed. But uh, but just to clarify for, for listeners, that's not the Federal Reserve. Like that's not their money. That's 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 J.P. Morgan's. That's Goldman Sachs. That's Citigroup. That's Deutsche Bank. Um, and and one thing that I think is important to point out here too, just kind of tying all this together. Um, there's no good collateral out there to support short-term loans in the repo market so that the, to, 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 boost, to boost lending and spending um, because, quite frankly, no one's willing to take the risk on shitty collateral and no one is willing to post shitty collateral for the interest rates that were being offered, for instance, in September, which were like 10% in the repo market. The Fed had to step in to provide liquidity to drive those interest rates down, and this is an important point, I think, for listeners. That's what all the Fed's market operations ultimately seek to do, and Ansel, correct me if I'm stepping out of line, is they're wanting to drive interest rates. Why would you go to banks that are charging you 10% when the Fed's offering zero? Um, and what this also does, and we can kind of dabble in here because I think it fits with some of your theories on um, uh, you know, inflation and uh, all of that kind of stuff, but you know, this, this fucks with price discovery. Uh, because if, if banks aren't willing to lend uh, money to an institution because their collateral is not good, then that should tell you something. But right now, the Fed's offering basically indiscriminate, uh, indiscriminate um, you know, loans to, to anyone who has something that's worth posting on their balance sheet. Let's talk about collateral for a second because a debt-based money system uh, incentivizes money printing. Uh, and for the consensus layer, the repo market, uh, to function, it needs collateral. And so they, these banks or the, the uh, people that want to access the, the money markets, they invent exotic collateral. That's why we saw the MBSs. And uh, now we see like, I'm really, uh, I, I don't want to cut in re- here really quickly. I'm very happy you're, you're, you're hitting on this. Cause this is something I don't think the average American realizes that a lot of financial uh, instruments on wall street are debt repackaged into more debt repackaged into more debt. And sold and just passed, uh, uh, passed uh, from from bank to bank. Yeah, and the the reason why they're doing that is to extend the ability to inflate more, right? But eventually, it has its own. Uh, it's a it's a ticking time bomb. So it has its own end in sight. So when these exotic, when the the collateral gets too exotic, and too fragile, and some people start uh, not accepting it in the repo market. That's when you see a big freeze, like we saw in in September and what we saw in 2008. So um, it's the natural progression to search out 
new collateral for this repo market. And the, that's why I think a lot of this is actually negative what the Fed is doing. They're, they're uh, not helping the situation at all, even uh, what their, their crazy plans are. Uh, they are taking good collateral out of the system, not only like uh, the government bonds through uh, QE, but now these, all these other programs are taking all the marginal collateral out too. So uh, again, it comes back to there's just no collateral for the consensus layer to keep going and uh, we're, it's going to freeze up. Right. And we're starting to see the pipes freeze already, which is why the, the Fed has to turn on the burner, you know, and, uh, and that leads, to turn on this big, that leads to deflation though, because when, if the music stops, there's going to be massive defaults everywhere. And that is a hyper deflationary event. So um, let's, let's unpack yeah. that a little bit because people hear words like deflation and inflation thrown around a lot. Um, so give people, give the people a quick, you know, two sentence rundown of the, your, uh, of a, def, a good uh, definition for deflation. Deflation is a contraction in the money supply. Inflation is an expansion of the money supply. Those both have corresponding price movements. So it, an expansion of the money supply inevitably leads to inflation somewhere. And a contraction of the money supply inevitably leads to price decreases. And we're seeing that everywhere. Every commodity you know, has been in a two, three-year bear market now. Um, government uh, or oil, I mean, that's a great example of what happened in the oil market. That's uh, you know, going negative. You can't get much lower than it went. Uh, no. So all prices are dropping. And that is a sign of money being destroyed. It's a deflationary event. The monetary base is being um, uh, pulled back right now through the through these defaults. And 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 can you explain why there it's being pulled in from these defaults? So people obviously like you know their their yeah, so, their loans are getting called in. They can't pay it, and so they their their spending power is basically obliterated. Right, and um, so when money is created by banks making loans, and if you can't pay that money back and you default, then that money is now destroyed again. So it's created in the loan process and it's destroyed in a default process or in a paying off. You don't, you can't even pay off the debt because paying off the debt actually destroys that money too. Uh, it's a slower, more controlled way of doing it. But, uh, uh, you know, you, that's what this debt money is based on. It's based on expansion and contraction. And right now, um, that's why I don't think there is inflation out there. I don't think the money supply is uh, expanding. I think all of these defaults are way, way too much for anything that the Fed is doing, anything the U.S. government's doing. You know, money is going to continue to be destroyed, and that's. But you know, some of our some of our listeners might ask, uh, how how can we be in a deflationary economy if the Fed is printing trillions? And what would you say to that? Well, the factoring yeah. in the fact that a lot of the money that a lot of the wealth that has been created in the past 10 years uh, with people taking out loans to buy assets like homes, uh, a lot of that will be will soon be destroyed, especially in the next few months as we start to see more defaults, as more people struggle to pay their mortgages because of coronavirus. But anyway, continue. Yeah, I mean, there's some really big markets out there, like the U.S. Treasury market, uh, the euro dollar market. Um, repo markets, uh, there's FX markets and derivatives. Uh, I mean, there's a quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives alone. 
And then all of these other markets are probably quadrillions more on top of that. And so when the, when you see these like $200 billion bailouts from the government or whatever, that's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's like trying to, in the bucket. yeah, it's trying to hold, uh, you know, the dam is breaking and you have a little metal bucket trying to help. No, it's not, it's not going to work. It's the deflation. You, you have to, I mean, they would have to do a $10 trillion package just to see any sort of difference in my mind. Um, mm. So that's, that's kind of how I explain it. So when do we get the inflation that Bitcoiners are always clamoring for? You know, I won't say we're clamoring <laughs> for it, but we're rather kind of, you know, uh, uh, prophesying that it's going to happen. I don't know if we do. I don't know if we do. I think the CBDC stuff that we're seeing is um, an attempt to go. So, so can you can you can you can you give us the, the name behind the acronym and explain so, uh, yeah, CBDC, I think that's the, the thing behind these uh, CBDCs, which is the central bank digital currencies. Um, there are many d- different central banks around the world are actively pursuing this new technology. Uh, it's kind of like an um, ugly stepchild of Bitcoin in a way. Then they're trying to use this as a government, new government currency. Um, and they're, they're trying to find some sort of new collateral or some sort of new money that they can use. Uh, because they have a feeling that this whole system is coming down. So I don't know if, I mean, eventually maybe, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years out, we might see some inflation, but I don't see any inflation near term. It's not coming. One reason why gold is Mm -hmm. going up, I think, is because people are looking for collateral and gold is good collateral. It's right up there with U.S. treasuries. So there's demand as collateral, not demand in inflation, but demand as being collateral and Bitcoin needs to jump on that train. I think that this is a huge opening for Bitcoin to become seen as pristine collateral in a way. So I hope over the next like 12 months or so we start seeing uh, some companies or, or something happening on that front to, to really get in there as being pristine collateral. Yeah. So I think that's a good kind of segue for us to um, kind of jump into another topic on our list. We've already kind of gone over one, right? Like, uh, you know, concept of debt money, right? Um, and, and obviously, Bitcoiners know what fiat money is. Um, but uh, maybe we can just run through some of your, you know, theses and your insights on, you know, differences between commodity money, debt money, and fiat money. And because and kind of what you were just saying right there, you know, we could have a commodity money again with something like backed by Bitcoin and gold. Yeah, so um, there there are big differences between debt, fiat, and commodity monies. Um, commodity is easy to explain, right? Uh, every Bitcoiner knows that. Uh, fiat money, though, is um, it's money created that doesn't have a corresponding debt to it. And this is where MMT goes down this road. So right now we have a debt-based system where when new money is created, there's a corresponding debt or financial product that's also created. And... Um, so that's the difference between pure fiat and pure debt money is the backing. What else is created along with that money? Um, during Bretton Woods, we had a combination. So there was debt because it was fractional reserve, but there was also uh, fiat because it was legal tender and there was commodity behind it. It was all backed pegged to gold through the U S dollar. Um, right now on the Euro dollar standard, we have a pretty much a pure debt system. 
So it's all based on debt. The way that, uh, and I don't think people really appreciate how much different that system is to the end game. So the end game for a fiat money that is not backed by debt or commodity, that is hyperinflation. That's where we see all these hyperinflations in history. Um, a commodity money is, can have some uh, inflationary cycles, uh, but there's no deflation because every ounce of gold is still there. So if you have a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard, um, you might get some inflation, but then uh, in the bust, the boom and the bust, in the bust, there's no destruction of the money supply because there's still the same ounces of gold there. Um, but in a debt-based system, you have inflation and deflation. And this deflationary cycle is what many people don't understand because they're comparing it to like fiat, pure fiat money that's not backed by debt um, or commodity money. So I think that's, that's where most people kind of trip up in understanding the system we have right now is debt can deflate. Nothing else will deflate. This is the only type of money that has this built-in deflation on the backside. Well, theoretically, couldn't fiat money deflate, right? Like, I mean, it, it, uh, I, I don't see any reason why a money that has the same risk profile in some regards as debt-based money where, you know, it's not necessarily tethered to anything that has, you know, for, for lack of a better term, intrinsic value, right? Like you could still theoretically get deflation because, you know, money could still be destroyed in that system, right? Um, I guess it could. Yeah. The, in, in some respects, but as a global monetary base, uh, there's nothing to deflate. It's all just, I mean, yeah, they could I guess, deflate it it's by all taking, the, go ahead. It's like trying to deflate air, I guess. Right. Yeah, like or, it's just, there's just so much of it already and the monetary base is already supreme and like, you know, uh, under complete control or under complete control of, you know, the, 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 the government that controls it. But I guess, you know, changes in supply, you know, it just absorbs that change basically, right? Yeah. Like the, the, the sovereign issuer just absorbs that change in the money supply. So it's not really created or destroyed. Yeah, they can um, try to cause uh, some deflation by raising taxes in, in a total fiat MMT world or modern monetary okay. world. And just, um, and just yeah. completely pull that money out of the monetary base. Yeah, they can try Basically to do like that. a token burn. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, and but most of the time, the way they get deflation in that in those systems is they just take zeros off. So instead of everything costing a thousand units, it just costs ten units. They just cut the zeros off. It's really incredible because, like, I think when you Google MMT or like people talk about it, it seems like this absolute like leviathan of a monetary system that's very hard to approach. And it's really complex and abstruse and involves all of these crazy monetary and fiscal maneuvers. But at the end of the day, it's literally as simple as just taking dollars and cents off of a balance sheet. I mean, yeah. what, what, you know, I mean, that's an oversimplification for what happens now. Um, but I'm really interested to kind of circle to circle back to one of something we were talking about previously. And once central bank digital currencies do exist and they will exist, they're coming and they'll be everywhere. Um, and you're able to open up a direct line with your central bank. Um, that's what I, that, that's my next question. I, 
would it, don't you open up the floodgates for inflation at that point? Because then, I, I think Nick Carter has argued this, um, bailouts have lost their, their, their weight. You know, like I remember when I was, I was young when the financial crisis of 07, 08, 09 was going on, but I remember the word bailout being like a very foreign term. I was obviously a kid, but it sounded, it sounded scary. Like, oh, wow, that's a big deal. Uh, that does no, we, that it does no longer holds its weight. We've made money cheap, and um, everyone expects liquid. Everyone expects cash from from the Federal Reserve, and and UBI will eventually become the standard. I think once some central bank digital currencies are entrenched. So all that to say, you know, um, now that the precedent's been broken, and it's kind of just like, yeah, we'll we'll give people money for any crisis. Um, you know, do you see inflation? You know, do you see if if, if the government continues to kind of respond to every crisis by throwing money at it, do you see inflation as a possibility in a, in a shorter time horizon than you'd originally said? No, I don't think so. Um, because I, I believe bailouts are money replacements. Um, the money is being destroyed behind the scenes and these bailouts are just trying to, you know, stem the tide of the, of the deflation. Um, we just, like I said, look at uh, prices around the, I mean, stock market prices are fake. We can kind of uh, talk about that, but the commodities prices everywhere, um, even wages and stuff, real wages are flat or down over the last 30 years. So I I see that um, the inflation is just not there in the economy. So the reason why the repo market freezes up is because nobody wants to take that collateral. It's It's an estimation on the liquidity provider, the bank with the reserves, they look at the person that's trying to give them collateral for money and they don't trust them. Right. And so the original time that we did bailouts, then it shifted, it had an effect on the entire psyche of the market and they were felt more confident about it. And so they were willing to unfreeze the market and start lending again and flow this money around. Um, But as we get more and more used to bailouts, that doesn't help their confidence it almost works the opposite way. And so uh, bailouts kind of now signal that things are going to be really bad. Uh, so don't lend that money. Stop the, f- stop the flow of cash. So yeah, it's a diminishing returns. And I, I think we're at the end of the road that way. So that's why the, the Fed has to come in through the entire market. All right. So you don't see inflation in, in the short term or the near term. Um, we kind of get back on this topic. Um, can you explain one more time wh- how we're seeing deflation in the market currently with, with, with defaults and the destruction of the money in the monetary base? When, with debt money, it's created when you make a loan. And when you default on that loan, that money is destroyed. Now, what we see in the repo market and in money markets in general is these these customers, not the primary dealers that are the big banks that are doing, uh, that have a lot of the different collaterals, but some of the smaller players that are needing that capital, that they're needing the liquidity, but they don't have access, direct access to it. So they, um, they're trying to get access to the money markets to pay off their debt or to service their debt, but they can't because whatever collateral that they have to offer is no good. And so nobody is going to lend to them. And that's why the Fed is coming in and providing those direct payments for them to service their debt. So there is no deflation or there's less deflation. Um, But on a 
bigger scheme, many businesses are hurting. Many businesses can't make payroll. Many businesses are going, you know, just closing their doors. Um, and so the entire like monetary system is having this big uh, default cycle. It's so gigantic. I think it's in the, it's, you know, 500 trillion you would need to plug this hole. And so anything that the Fed is doing right now is, is not enough to keep the monetary base even level. It, it, you know, like uh, uh, it's not inflationary because it's, the money supply is still decreasing faster than anything the Fed is pumping in to replace it. It's, it's not inflationary because the economy shutting down means that there's so much capital not being either moved or produced because production is completely gone that anything that you said that the Fed could throw at this, they couldn't move it. It's like trying to move, it's like trying to move a 500 ton beast, you know, with, 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 with a shovel, <laughs> with, 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 a, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's trying to just move, move mountains with men. Um, and, it, and it's not possible. And that's another thing that I wanted to uh, build on really quickly isn't, you know, uh, for all we said at the beginning, you know, there were, the coronavirus, uh, COVID was kind of the thing that really kicked off a lot of this, but it is totally exacerbating this. Absolutely. That's part of the reason why you saw uh, oil plummet the other day is because obviously no one's, you know, no one's using their, no one's driving their cars. Uh, factories are shutting down. No one needs oil. No one wants to store it. And so uh, you see the the prices go down. Um and so definitely that's another thing to be said, how COVID is, is, is contributing to this deflationary crisis. Um, another thing I want to kind of circle back on, uh, you know, so on, by your understanding, uh, USD is not fiat currency. That's a tough question because there's all these different, there's, it's a different recipe than, um, what we, it's a different recipe than Brenton Woods. It's a different recipe than um, like a gold standard. And so it's, it's debt-based money with a fiat attached. So there's, it's, it is legal tender. But that fiat does not expand to the entire globe, right? So the, the U.S., like it's, it's hard to explain because it, it is fiat in the United States, but the United States is not the end-all be-all of the global financial system. It's only 20% of the GDP of the world. So 80% of the, the dollar standard is outside of the U.S. And that is not fiat. That's created in the free market by the, the banks, by foreign banks. So the U.S. has control over the little bit of U.S., um, but it's still debt-based money. So like when the Fed is doing all these currency swaps and things, it's, it's always on a term. So like they'll lend money, they'll lend money on a three-month time frame. So at interest. So that's, that's another reason why I say that this deflation is, is baked into this type of system because you create the money, but you also have interest on that. And so you, uh, somebody has to default somewhere, right? Eventually, or you just keep inf uh, pumping more and more and more and more money in uh, to try to keep that from collapsing, but it'll eventually end in deflation. Uh, uh, they can't keep up with it forever. So one Does question really quickly uh, for this distinction, you know, between, you know, fiat money at home, uh, debt-based money abroad. We've seen the Fed kind of step in to uh, provide 
you know, liquidity with dollar swap lines and, uh, you know, step into even foreign repo markets. If the Fed's doing stuff like that, does that mean that the debt based money in international markets is getting diluted with fiat money? No, because it's, oh, it's still debt. They uh, are, it's on a term. So the, the currency because it's still collateralized by something. So, so what makes the fiat money be paid fiat back. in the, in the United States? Is it be, like, what, what part of it makes it fiat money? Is it when the fed buys something and puts it, adds it to its balance sheet and the bank never pays it back? Well, my definition here, fiat, I mean, some people can argue with this, uh, but I say it is un it's money created that is not have an associated debt created. So that's, you just conjure it out of thin air and there's no debt associated with that. So the government doesn't have to sell treasuries. They just create the money. Mm, yeah. Since there's treasuries yeah, and this, attached, yeah. those treasuries are debt, right? And so there's financial products and et cetera. That's, that's what backs the, the U S dollar for the most part. There is some maybe, I mean, you could find some like little pieces of fiat in the system where I like, I think the interest paid on excess reserves at the bank, uh, the fed, that interest might be considered fiat because I don't know if there's an offsetting debt, um, with that, with those interest payments. But I'll tell you what QE is not QE is definitely not fiat money. It's, it has a debt associated with it. But couldn't you consider that debt? completely null because it's treasuries created by the United States government. Like they can create as many treasuries as they want to. Um, like if you're printing, it doesn't matter if you're printing the collateral because the money is still printed. Right. I mean, sorry, I should say if the collateral is printed, then the money should also be considered printed in fiat. I guess there, there is some fiat involved with, like I said, legal tender. So anytime you slap the term legal tender on there, uh, the court system backs it up, you know, the, the common mm -hmm. law system kind of backs, backs up the use of that money. Um, but debt money is different than pure fiat created by the government without any debt. And that's, that's the, actually, when we go back to the modern monetary theory, um, that's the basis for it. Because in modern monetary theory, there is no treasury issuance. It's just, we just create the money. You guys can spend it. And the way we control the money supply is through taxation. So the input is conjured money with no debt and tax. So that's how they control the money supply in MMT world. I don't know. What's your take on MMT? I mean, it seems kind of inevitable. Yeah, I think that's where the central bank digital currencies are going. Is they're, they're trying to create some sort of fiat power for the government. Because the way the euro dollar system are, are the actual monetary system that we have in the world uh, is outside of anyone's control. It's actually kind of, it's crazy, but it's kind of free market in a way uh, because nobody controls the entire thing. The Fed is not central to the dollar standard because like I said, it's only, 20, it's only central to 20% of it. The other 80% is completely in the wild and... There is no overarching hierarchy. Interesting take. Um, it, when, when I started getting into the Euro dollar stuff, it, it totally flips a lot of the things that you think on your head. So um, huh. it's hard to explain so, and you kind of have to be exposed to it for a long time to let it really get in. it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one, 
maybe a good thing to close out the the episode. Um, this is kind of a good place for it. Uh, you want to, unless we've already kind of gone over everything about your strong dollar thesis, but I don't know, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but do you want to kind of talk about that for a second? Basically, I think it's going to end in deflation or the deflation is so baked into the cake that nothing that the government or the Fed can do can get us out of this problem. So Japanification is next. And that's where, mm-hmm. you know, monetary policy basically has no power at all. And, uh, and fiscal policy as well has, has no power. And, and yeah. this is something, this is something that I've talked to my dad about uh, going back to the Japanification. He kind of calls it the, the, the restructuring of America's balance sheet. Like this idea that the Fed goes in and basically just buys everything um, and at that point, like you said, uh, so for, for those of for our listeners, when we're talking about the, the Japanification, it refers to the phenomenon um, in the, it was in the 80s, right? Like the late 80s? Uh, they're or going to the decade, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, so it's like basically just ongoing. Um, since then, the, the Bank of Japan has bought up something like 30% of equities in Japan. Like it's something, it's something actually absurd. Um, so they, their balance sheet includes 30% of the stocks uh, that originate from Japanese soil. Um, and, you know, if, uh, like Ansel's kind of saying, oh, the, the path that we're headed on is something similar. How long can the world last with pretty much zero growth? We're not, we're not ready for that because it, it doesn't sound that bad. Like it sounds, oh, it's not negative. At least we're not going into a depression or whatever. But uh, that's because we have lived off of hyper growth for so long, you know, like China growing at 10, 20% every year. So there's been a lot of growth in the world. Um, when we experience zero growth in the world, I don't think there's going to be very much political. People won't stand it. They will demand a change and some way to get growth. Uh, so that's where I think the actual monetary reset happens, whether it's to gold or to Bitcoin or something like that. And it probably won't take that long. I don't think it within five years, they will uh, probably start moving towards a new system. Wow. I think that's a good place to cap it. That was awesome. Uh, Ansel, thanks so much for coming on, brother. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm a host of Bitcoin and Markets uh, podcast. So you can go bitcoinandmarkets.com uh, to find me there. Do you, you have a personal Twitter? Yep. Ansel Lindner. Awesome. All I right, hope I made awesome, sense Ansel. here. <laughs> you did make sense, man. This was a great episode. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your quarantine days to uh, jump on the pod and yeah man we'll be keeping track of everything so i'm gonna i'm gonna remind you on twitter about your five-year uh projection there okay <laughs> set in stone baby no, but seriously thanks for coming on man stay well and i uh, hope you and your family stay safe out there thanks guys see you A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. Mm-hmm.